Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Today we continue our series, Dear Church. And uh, today the title of the message, as you may have seen with uh, the, the, the kind of makeshift coffin up here, is uh, The Living Dead. The Living Dead. Yeah, physicists tell us that light travels at a constant rate, 186,000 miles per second. That's what, uh, how, the, how light, the speed of light. And because this universe is so fast, cosmologists have, or cosmo, uh, yeah, cosmologists have invented a unit of measurement called the light year, the light year, which is the distance that light travels in one year. So here's how the math works. It works out to be 5.88 trillion miles a year. So because a star is very distant from Earth, most stars in our atmosphere, it takes a distant starlight many years before we actually see it. The light that we see when we look at the stars have been traveling for years and then as, they, as they come, many, many years ago. For example, the stars that make up the Big Dipper. Anybody look up and you can make out the Big Dipper? The light that you see in the Big Dipper from that constellation ranged from 78 to 123 light years away from Earth. That means the next time you stand and look up at the night sky, and if it's a clear night and there's not a lot of uh, light pollution, uh, as you begin to look at that, for the most part, that light that you see began a journey many, many years ago that you are now seeing for the first time. But that light was produced by that star many, many years ago. And so uh, sometimes we might wonder, do some of the stars in the Big Dipper still exist? For instance, in the handle or in the basin, are those stars still active or have any of them burned out? We don't know because that light had been produced and keeps going and going. In fact, there are some stars that have been burned out but we still see their light today uh, as a result of many, many light years. And we may not realize that that star has been burned out and is dead. And in our series, Dear Church, as we take a look at the next church and we switch over a chapter, we were in Revelation chapter 2. Today, we're in Revelation chapter 3. And starting in verse 1, it opens like this. A letter to the church at Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. Listen to this. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This church was living on a past reputation. They were living on past glories. They were living on, you might say, past starlight. They were walking around with the appearance that they had a reputation of light. But how many of you know that the Lord doesn't look as man sees? Man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. And although on the outside there was a reputation of life, and everybody thought there was life on the inside, Houston, we have a problem we are seeing nothing more than past glorious life when in reality you are dead. We can kind of take a tour of archaeological sites in Europe. In the Near East, for example, we might see the Parthenon. 
or the Acropolis in Athens, or we go to Rome and we see the Colosseum and we see all of these structures that, that are pictures of, of something that once was but is now faded glory. Once vigorous, wealthy, powerful, army, powerful empires now today stand as relics of days gone by. How many of you know if you travel and you do a search, there are many beautiful structures and many beautiful churches, and yet those once beautiful and vibrant churches now find themselves struggling to make ends meet, struggling to hold anyone that would come, struggling to have any kind of a light. They have a form of religion, a form of godliness, but not much life. They've got reputation of days gone by and yet nothing today. And as we've been studying these letters, what we find is they typically follow a, a particular pattern. It, it announces who it is written to, usually to the angel or the leader of a particular church, followed by who Jesus is to them, characteristics of who he is that match up with, the, with, with something that they're going to need, a character quality in Jesus that is going to speak to where they are and the need that they have. And then typically in the order, it's followed by a commendation. Hey, hey this is what I see. I see that you are doing this well. You are doing this very well. Kind of a, a picture of encouragement before moving into with most of these letters in these churches, something to correct, something of a corrective nature. However, in this particular letter, what we find is that it starts out with the same pattern like it did to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira where the Lord sends his greeting and, 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 and typically following his greeting, he, he shares his character and then he moves to encouragement, but not in Sardis. In Sardis, there is no word of praise. In Sardis, there is no word of encouragement, except maybe if you look down to verse 4 where it says that there are a few of you that have not soiled your garments, but for the most part, there was nothing that Jesus found for which he could praise or commend this church. Ouch, right? That's a startling consideration when you, when you look at their reputation. You have a reputation of being alive. Certainly, there would be something to commend in this church. If you were to analyze it from the outside, statistically, you might say, well, this is a healthy church. This is a good church. They've got a great reputation. But there was nothing for which the Lord Jesus Christ could praise this church. How many know appearances can be deceiving? And that's no more true than in the spiritual realm of churches, in the spiritual realm of our own lives. When it comes to genuine spirituality, genuine relationship with Jesus versus just simply a form of religion or godliness. It's possible for an individual or a person to appear to be alive when in fact spiritually the Lord Jesus Christ says you are dead. The Puritans are such, called such individuals, they called them a gospel hypocrite. The Greek word hypocrite coming and using the, the, the term actor meaning to put on a mask of some kind, giving the appearance of one way when in reality it's not exactly what that is at all. Going through the outward motions of Christianity, but inside being spiritually dead. In fact, that's how Jesus described the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 to 28. This is what he said to them. He begins with the word woe. How many of you know it's never good when you hear woe? 
Whoa, woe is me. He didn't say woe is me. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Those are the religious leaders. Those are the ones who, who knew the Old Testament gospels inside and out. The ones who taught. The ones who were the examples. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And friends, the same thing can happen to us as individuals, and the same thing can happen to a church. And that is what's being addressed here, living on a past reputation of spiritual vitality, and yet at the same time, resting on those things while being dead on the inside. No spirituality. Here's a church whose reality didn't match their reputation. It had a reputation for, for being the happening thing. It was, it was the thing that was going on. It, it was perhaps numerically strong. Perhaps they were counting the statistics. And man, we've just got to look at how many people we have coming to our church. Perhaps the offerings were healthy. Wow, we've got great offerings. Man, we are financially secure. Things are going well. We are healthy. Perhaps it excelled in doing other things, but the Lord in examining the church according to its relationship with himself, he said, you have a reputation of being alive, but in my sight you are dead. How many of you know we must remember that there is nothing better organized than a graveyard? But there's little life there. There's little life there. Christ's words to this dead church stand as a timeless warning. To all churches in all locations throughout all time. That a church can at some point in its history, if not careful, if not being watchful, can turn from a vibrant church, a church that worships, a church that is, that is there spiritually, spiritually alive, to a church that begins to just go through the motions and begin to rest and say, remember when, remember when we did this when, remember when we did that, remember when, remember when, remember when, and then you find yourself coasting, and before you know it, there is not much life. We can turn towards a decline in spiritual deadness if we're not careful. The church might still have a reputation. We're a great church, but like Samson who all of a sudden had went without his hair and didn't realize it and stood up. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson rose up just like he had done before, but this time his hair gone did not realize that with it so also his strength. The Spirit of the Lord had left him and he didn't realize it. And that is the danger. That is the danger that we as individual believers and that we as a church need to be aware of. That we do not continue to find ourselves simply going through the motions and we don't even recognize that the Spirit has left. That's what happened to Sardis. They didn't realize that their reputation had outlasted their actual spiritual life. In an observation of this church in Sardis, it was so devoid of life. What we see here is, is that there is no struggles. In, in, in a church that we looked at last week in Thyatira, we saw that there was, there was somebody that was named a prophetess who named herself a prophetess, Jezebel. There's no Jezebel here. 
In, in the church previous to this that we had looked at in Pergamum, it was, it was about the, the Nicolaitans and it was about those who, who had come in and, and were trying to draw them away from the outside, those who, who followed Balaam's teaching. There's no false teachers here. There's, there's no Nicolaitan teachers here. There's no female seducers. We don't see any kind of persecution that is mentioned for this church. There's no persecution. There's no hardship. There, there, there's nothing that is mentioned. Nothing. Sometimes we think that healthy means the absence of trouble. We are a healthy church if we have no trouble, if we don't have any problems, if we don't have anybody attacking us and things are going well, God's blessing must be upon us because we don't have any persecution, we don't have any trouble, we don't have any problems, everything is well. If we're not battling with people who have a little bit of air, you know, let me just be honest, you know, when it comes to Pentecost and a Pentecostal church, how many of you know that sometimes you get a little wildfire? Whenever you got a little fire, sometimes there's a little wildfire, isn't there? There are those that kind of want to act in the spirit but act in the flesh. You know what I'm talking about? You got people that are false teachers that rise up and they try to do this and there's battles that are going on. And we think that sometimes if we don't have any of that, if everything is good, we've got a healthy church. But here, this is a church that there was nothing, to, to, nothing for them to be praised about. There was no conflict. There was, there was nothing. They thought they were the picture of health. Houston, you are dead, and you don't even realize it. Why? Satan didn't have to attack this church because he figured out he could just lull them to sleep. See, that's the other side of things. The enemy is always working. He's always working against his church. He's always working against us as unbelievers. The battle's not against flesh and blood. There's a very real spiritual battle that is going on. But sometimes the enemy doesn't necessarily attack from the outside with persecution. And sometimes he doesn't have to attack in terms of false teaching and those kind of things. Sometimes he can just get you to be comfortable where you're at and to find yourself in a place of complacency. He can lull you to sleep. And you don't even realize it. But I remember when. Charles Swindoll, the great pastor and preacher, says, What begins as a deathbed scene here, however, suddenly shifts to emergency room drama. As we switch over to verse 2, what we see is a command is given, Be watchful. Literally, the words are, Wake up! Some of you just stirred. You just jumped. You were already asleep already. Wake up! <laughs> Wake up! Strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. And then verse 3, remember, therefore, hold fast and repent. What is the Lord doing here? The Lord is attempting to wake up his church. They are on the gurney. They don't even realize they're dead. The heartbeat has, is getting ready to stop. It's weak. It's stopped. And he takes out those paddles and he says, clear, wake up. Right? How many know sometimes in the church that's what we need? We need the spiritual paddles. We need the spiritual vitality in our individual lives for the Lord to say, wake up. And that's what happens here. You see, twice in Sardinian history, the city had been invaded because of complacency. The city was built on the side of a, a great hill. The city was built literally into a hill. And it, and, and it only had one way up from the south that you could get in. You could only get in from the south. That's the way, the only the way the enemies could attack because it was built literally into the side of a mountain. And so there was no way. So attackers go to attack it and, and, and they have to climb over the walls in order to be able to get in. And so we thought, we're, we're secure. 
we're secure, we're secure, we're secure. But twice they were attacked because of complacency. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. What does Jesus tell them? If we find that our faith is dead, if we find that our faith is lacking, if we find a struggle of true spiritual vitality, what can we do? And in a kind of a, a staccato style, that means a very quick, rapid file, Jesus gives them four action steps to recovery. Four action steps to recovery. So here we go. Clear. We're going to talk about four action steps. First is wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The first need of the church or an individual that is dying or dead is to have an awakening to their condition. Because we oftentimes we forget this church had a reputation of being alive, did not even realize that it was in the state that it was in, that it was in a dead state. And in order for us to take the first step, we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to awaken us to our current condition. If we don't awaken, we don't think there's a problem. We're in denial. Oh, there's no problem with me. Everything is going fine. I mean, come on. I've attended church for years. I used to teach Sunday school. I used to do this. I used to do that. If you find yourself qualifying your spiritual life by I used to, you may be spiritually on the verge of death. If we find ourselves, I used to. I used to read my Bible. I used to do my devotions. I, I used to pray. I, I used to have. I, I remember way back, man, we had these all-night prayer meetings. And I used to go, and I used to intercede, and I used to spend that time. I used to, I used to, I used to. See, that's where they had a past reputation but they weren't even aware because of their good intentions and their past reputation that the deeds they were doing were incomplete. They were starting, but they weren't finishing. Well, I had this good idea, and we started out, but I didn't finish. But I didn't finish. And he said, I found your deeds unfinished or incomplete in the sight of my God. You have a way of beginning, but not a way of carrying them through. And the problem was they were unaware. And oftentimes, that's the problem. That's the problem with the church. That's the problem with us individually and spiritually. We get lulled to sleep, and we are unaware of our spiritual condition. And the Lord says, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Somewhere along the line, Sardis began to lose spiritual vitality. It's kind of like in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul said this, wake up, O sleep, arise from the dead, Christ will shine upon you. And the need for Sardis was one to wake up, to probe and ask, Lord, what are the areas in my life that are no longer spiritually vital, where I no longer have a spiritual vitality in my life, where I've kind of moved into a coasting mode? What is, what is going on? We need the Holy Spirit to, to search our hearts, don't we? I was trying to ponder, I was trying to ponder what this death was. I was trying to, like, how, how, we don't give any details. Like, what was happening in this church? What, what would describe them as being dead when they, when they did? And, and so I, I kind of came up with some things, and again, I, I don't know, but maybe when they gathered together for worship, you know, they did what we do. They sang songs. Perhaps their songs were contained within the building. They didn't even reach the heart of God. 
the songs they sang were songs that, that they would do out of a hymnal or, you know, they didn't have visual screens like we have here. So, you know, maybe things that had been passed down that they had memorized, but they weren't, they were no longer songs from the heart. They were just songs that we sang because that's what we do. That's what we do. In terms of worship, it was a performance instead of worship toward God. When they prayed praise, they were just perfunctory prayers. They were kind of prayers of duty. Things that had been written down, things that they could just say, things that they could just say over and over, kind of prayers they had memorized, but there was nothing from the heart. They had lost intercession for the lost. There was no intercession for the lost. There was no care. There was no moving for the lost. They, they didn't move the heart of God. When it came to social things, oh, we did that because that's what good people do. That's what we ought to do. But there was not really a concern that I will do this unto the least of these, my brothers. You've done it unto me. In other words, their, their worship in the language of the Old Testament stopped short in the outer courts, but never entered into the throne room of God. And that's what happens when we have a dead, rote way of religion and worship. We stop short. We find ourselves doing what needs to be done because that's what you do as a Christian. Meanwhile, we don't have any heart in it. There's no heart in it. Nothing reaches God's heart. Nothing satisfies him. And to awaken in the scripture doesn't mean to simply start looking around with your eyes. But it begins with that. And it means getting work to correcting things. There's correction that has to take place. But it begins with an awakening. I wonder how many families, how many marriages, how many persons in this room this morning have a great reputation. Maybe here in our Christian community, in our church, maybe a reputation in the community. Everything has, looks like a great model of piety, a model of success, maybe even spirituality. But yet if you look at the interior life, you realize that there's nothing of substance that is there. Maybe the relationship of prayer is gone from your life. Maybe the idea of family and being in terms of worship is absent. Before others, there's a front, a name of being alive, but internally, internally, some things are missing, and you know it. You know it. You know it's been missing. You know it's been missing for some time, but you're not sure, how do I get it back? The Lord would say, wake up. In fact, if you find yourself in that place, I have three words for you. They come from the Old Testament, repair the altar. Repair the altar. What do I mean by that? What does that mean? See, when, it, when, when, when a king in the Old Testament would come to the throne, particularly the it, kings of Judah oftentimes, when they would come to the throne, they would recognize the idolatry that had been going on in their nation, that they didn't please God. Oftentimes they were being attacked by their enemies because of that judgment had come. They come in and they begin to recognize, hey, we have an idol problem. We've got a problem where God is no, longer, is, is no longer first in our lives. We have raised up all of these other altars in which we sacrifice to. And we have stopped worshiping the God of Jehovah. And what they would do to show that they were sincere about their worship of God, one of the first things they would do is they would go around and they would begin to repair the altar. They would begin to repair the altar. That was the place of worship. That was the place of sacrifice. That was the place to begin and put God first. And so I would say that if you find yourself in a position where things have begun to slide, where things have, you don't have that spiritual vitality, where things are not, I want to encourage you, repair the altar. Repair the altar. 
Repair the altar. Secondly, remember. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Verse 3, hold fast, hold it fast, and repent. There's more to this verse, but I want to focus on the word remember. I want to focus on the word remember. It was used back at the church in Ephesus when we began this whole series and we looked at Ephesus. Remember is a powerful word, isn't it? How many know our memories are a powerful word? I've often said this, that oftentimes we remember the things we should forget and we forget the things we should remember. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) That's what happens. So we're told to remember. What were they told to remember? What you have received and heard. And Jesus opens this letter as he does by so many, revealing his character. And this is what I want us to remember. This is what I think Jesus introduced himself in this way because he wants them to remember something. And what was it? This is how Jesus addresses this church. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now that is an odd phrase. That is an odd phrase. What does that mean, the seven stars? I I don't understand. In fact, this phrase was used as a part of the description in Revelation chapter 1 of Jesus himself when he revealed himself to John on the Isle of Patmos to begin writing. This is a part of that. What does this mean? Now, there are many different interpretations uh, given by people who are a lot smarter than me. Uh, about what this means but one that I agree with one that I think this points to is a messianic prophecy pointing in the Old Testament to who Jesus would be who the Messiah would be and how the Messiah would function under the power of the Holy Spirit Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2 in a prophetic word about the Messiah says this the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in this particular verse, you have seven ways in which the Holy Spirit operates through the working of the Messiah. There are several, several, seven key things here in which the Spirit of God will operate. They are not seven different spirits, but rather they are the way in which the Spirit of God is in operation through the ministry of the Messiah. Now, why is that important for us to understand? Because Jesus is saying here, I am the one who possesses the Spirit of God, and I am the one who brings forth life. You are a dead church, but you've got to remember that before you were even alive spiritually, I am the one that awakened you spiritually by my spirit, says the Lord. I am the one that breathed life into you. So now that you are on the, on the way of death, now that you have been lulled to sleep and you don't even realize it, you need to understand that in order for you to get back, you've got to remember who gave you life in the first place. You've got to remember that where life came from, and life didn't come from doing religious things. Life didn't come from doing good deeds. Life didn't come from you trying to become more righteous. Life came when you began to rest on my spirit and allow my spirit to move through you. He says, I'm the one who possesses the spirit. And I want you to remember that I'm the bringer of the spirit. And I think that no more Is there a pointed reminder to us today that whether we are in a place of spiritual vitality or whether we are in a backslidden condition today on the verge of spiritual death to remember that we need the Spirit of God and that Jesus Christ is the one who brings life. It is Jesus who has the responsibility to bestow upon us His Holy Spirit when we come in in, in humility. 
In fact, after his resurrection, when Jesus appeared to his disciples in John chapter 20 and verse 22, it says this, that he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. The word breath in the Old Testament, ruach, in the New Testament, pneuma, literally is a picture of the Holy Spirit and the Lord breathing life into his people. We need to realize in the deadness of our faith, our relationship with Jesus, a deadness maybe in our passion for Jesus that we once loved, that it's Jesus who breathes life through his Holy Spirit and that you and I must be born again. That's what he said to Nicodemus, isn't it? In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, again, a religious leader, a Pharisee, a religious person, and yet Jesus challenged him that his religion was dead. And he said, well, huh, what do I do? And he says, well, unless one becomes born again, he will not, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? Certainly Nicodemus recognized, I can't enter into my mother's womb once again. What do you mean? And he says, you must be born of the Spirit. And being born of the Spirit means that the Spirit of God begins to breathe life into your life. From that very first breath. And remember, if you've ever been in the, in the, in the room when a baby's been born, and trust me, you know, as a, as a father, I've been there, and then, and then you know, in, in the, and it's amazing because, you, you know, you're expecting and experiencing, and, and then, you know, the, the birth happens, and you're, there's that moment. Come on, how many, there's that moment you're waiting because what do you want to hear? That cry. That cry. Why do you want to hear that cry? Because that cry means that there is breath, there is life. On the same token, I've been in the room when, as a pastor, when those folks that we love have taken their last breath. That's a totally different experience. Breath signifies life. Breath signifies life. And Jesus says, I'm the giver of life. So if you are on the verge of death, you need to remember who the giver of life is. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament by a prophet by the name of Ezekiel who was told and led to a, given a vision of a valley of dry bones. How many remember this one? A valley of dry bones. And he said, I want you to prophesy to these bones. They're going to become a great army. I want you to prophesy to the bones. And Ezekiel began to prophesy to the bones. And the bones came together into a mighty army. And he said, I want you to, to prophesy to these bones. And, and then all of a sudden, the, the, the muscles and the sinews and all those became to come together and flesh upon them. And yet they stood there as an army. But there was a problem. There was a problem. There might have been an army that had come together. But they were dead until Ezekiel was told to prophesy to the breath. Prophesy side to the breath and breathe and the army came to life friends that's the state of the church the state of the church oftentimes is dead going through the motions but without any spiritual vitality or life and we need the Holy Spirit to breathe life into us we need the Holy Spirit to bring life into these dry bones that they may live how do we get there I want you to remember, I want you to hold fast, hold tight to those things. Don't let them go. Strengthen what remains. But here it is. There's another key critical step, and we've said it in each of these letters. Repent. 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 Why? Why is repentance so key to this? Because the scriptures tell us in, in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it says the wages of sin is what? Death. What leads to death? Sin. Sin leads to death. 
I mean, and you say, well, that's just Paul, right? Paul in his writings, he just consumed with that. Well, so, so, was, so was Jesus' brother, James. James in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Death. The problem with, with going to sleep is sin. At the heart of everything, it's sin. At the heart of being lulled to sleep, at the heart of losing spiritual vitality, somewhere along the line, we have given in to sin. There's been a pattern of sin. There's been choices to sin. There's been disobedience to God. And the wages of that is death. When, when it gets conceived, it starts out as temptation. We begin to accept it. We begin to be lulled to sleep. And all of a sudden, we begin to live in this pattern. And when it's full grown, it leads to death. And that was part of the problem. See, sin and disobedience lead to death. If we do not deal with sin, it will drain us of spiritual life. And we'll find ourselves with a form of godliness without the life and the power of the spirit. We will have religion without relationship. And that was the problem. Because Jesus says to them in verse 4, yet I have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, meaning that I have a few that haven't, but the rest of y'all, you have a sin problem and it has led to death. Attitudes, actions, complacency lead to death, and he says, repent. Notice, not just confess your sin. Repent. 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 And in most of these letters, the people of God, again, are called to repentance. So no matter what the problem is, when Jesus brings it to your attention, the key answer is repent. Finally, this morning, number four, you've got to recover the hope of the Lord's return. If we're going to wake up, if we're going to wake up, we've got to recover the hope of the Lord's return. I'm going to read the rest of this, three verses. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read it to you. And I want you to, to begin to think about, I want you to think about the end time symbolism that's here. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Here it is. Hold it fast and repent. And, and then it says this. But if you do not wake up. So in other words, if you, if you don't, if you don't repent, if, you, if, you, if I brought this to your attention and you don't, you don't make some changes, listen, if you don't make some changes, I will come like a thief. And you'll not know at what time I come to you. And then again, he encouraged, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me, dressed in white. They're worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out their name uh, of the person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, the language that follows here is a language that points us to the hope of the return. It points us to Jesus' return. It, it, it's very reminiscent of something that happened in Matthew chapter 24. The beginning of Matthew chapter 24, it opens with Jesus, and he's walking with his disciples, and they come upon the temple. Now, this is Herod's temple, all right? The temple had been built by Solomon, it had been torn down, it had been rebuilt again in Haggai, and then again it had been torn down, and again, Herod, when he had come, tried to restore and built the temple again, and this is, a, this is, this is Herod's temple, so to speak, but it's the temple, it's the place where worship is offered, and, and to those who have walked by, the temple is the very center of worship in the in Jerusalem, very center of worship to the Israelites. It is the place that is central. And it was a beautiful structure from outward appearances. 
and, and it was to be the place of worship. Yet we know that when Jesus walked in, there were the money changers that were all, he turned over tables. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And he was upset because what was supposed to happen wasn't happening. So they walk by and the disciples are in awe. Oh, look at the temple. Oh, look at the temple. And this is part of what got Jesus crucified is what he says here. And, and, and what, he's, what he says is, is he, he, says, he, he looks and he goes, you know, one stone, one stone is not going to be left upon another. Look at this temple. But I'm telling you that one day, one stone will not be left upon another. The enemies are going to come in. And, and literally, that was a prophecy because what happened a, century, a few, few decades later was that there was, there was an army that came in. There was a Roman uh, who came in, Roman uh, Caesar who came in, and he literally destroyed the temple, not leaving one stone upon another. And now, now the, the Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rocks, sits there instead of the temple. All right, it did. But at that point, they were shocked by this. you got to understand, this was the center of Israelite worship. This rocked the disciples' world. This, this shook them up. And so in verse 3, they, they said this. And we don't have a category. We don't understand this. There's not a category in our minds for this. And he says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And they said, tell us. When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now, Jesus goes through, and we're not going to go through all of Matthew 24, but he goes through and he gives a lot of the different signs, you know, earthquakes and, and, and changes in weather patterns and, you know, and, and, and the love of many growing cold and sin increasing and all of these kinds of things. But this is what he says in verse 42. Therefore, keep watch. Keep watch. Wake up. Watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Doesn't that sound like a little bit of what Jesus said? He says, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour that you do not, when you do not expect him. Now, now, what did Jesus say? Jesus said to this church, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come to you like what? A thief. And what does he say here? When the Son of Man comes, he's going to come like a thief. You're not going to know the day or the hour. You're not going to know when he comes. And the imminent return of Christ is something that we see. There are a lot of people that, that kind of go all like with this different theories. I don't know. Jesus is going to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, one second coming. Is there this? Is there that? There's all these arguments. But one thing is consistent in the Bible no matter where you line up and whatever it is. And that is this. You're not going to know when it happens. You're not going to know when he's coming. Clearly throughout scripture in the twinkling of an eye, when, we, when, the, when the last trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise. And after that, those who remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. These are prophecies of the coming of the Lord. And we don't know when he's coming. Just like we don't know when our last breath will be. We have no control over that. We don't know. And there are warnings throughout to keep watch. Keep watch, keep watch. And this is so critical for Sardis because as I told you, Sardis was a city. They were built up into a hill and they thought they were fortified. They thought they were, they, they had everything going for them, a slope 1,500 feet high in height. And so this one king, the first time around, this was before Christ, uh, 6th century BC, this guy by the name of Croesus. 
Croesus was, was the king, a famous king. He had all kinds of wealth, and he was the king in the city of Sardis at this time, built into the hill. He was king at that time. And he got into a conflict with another guy by the name of Cyrus, and, and Cyrus was from the Persian army, and, and Croesus was from the Greek army, and, and this is when you had the, the, the conflict that was going on in, in between Persia and Greek, and he thought he was safe because he was built up into a city, and so we're, we're just safe. They only can do is attack from the south. There's nothing they can do we are safe and so he went to sleep one night the city went to sleep one night and all of a sudden this brave person from the Persian army he goes oh I'm gonna scale that wall and he was like a mountain climber and he started scaling that wall there were no watchmen on the wall there was nobody there everybody was asleep he crawled over the wall he unlocked the gate and before you know it when Croesus woke up the next day he was no longer king he no longer had control over the city now you think that that would be something that would wake the city up, but yet centuries later, the same thing happened again. It happened again. The guy by the name of Antiochus, his army, Antiochus the Great, he came up against it in the year 218. And, and again, Sardis had recouped its political strength, its military might. It was thinking it was nice and secure. Everything was great. But again, no watchmen, nothing on the walls. And all of a sudden, this few little people crawled up over. They got inside. They unlocked the gate. And boom, the city was done. If you are not careful, if you do not keep watch, the enemy is looking to crawl over the walls in your life. You think you're secure. He crawls over, unlocks the gate. And before you know it, the enemy rushes in and you're destroyed. How do, you, how do you get away from that? You've got to remember that the thief could come at any moment. At any moment, Jesus could come again. And he, he says about a thief. Now listen, Jesus is not a thief. And we don't have to fear because when you're keeping watch and you're keeping watch over your life, you don't have to fear. Why? Because he, when he comes, he's taking you with him. But there's this whole series of books called Left Behind. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to be left thinking that I'm awake when I'm asleep. I don't want to be left thinking that I'm alive when I'm really dead. And when the Holy Spirit awakens and says, Whoa, you've got a problem, Houston. Wake up. Remember that I'm the giver of life. Remember my spirit. Remember what you need from me. Repent. Repent. And keep watch. Keep watch. The one who is victorious will be like them, dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Jesus is able to keep us from that for that day, the day of his return. If we will wake up, if we will remember that he's the giver of life, if we repent and hold on to the hope of his return. Now I want to close with one final story about an eccentric pastor and something that he did. He's preaching on this passage and and, uh, and, and, and he, was, he just got up one Sunday morning and he shocked his congregation. And he, and he said to them, you know what? Y'all are dead. Our church is dead. Y'all are dead. So you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to preach the memorial. I'm going I'm to preach the funeral service for our church tonight. So as you can imagine, they're all gasping. People were wondering. They had the best Sunday night attendance they had in years. I mean, they came back that night. There was the best Sunday night attendance. And when they came in, they had a coffin. He had a coffin in front, and, and he began to preach this funeral message for the church. And he said, you know, some of you don't believe me that our church is dead, and so if you want to see the remains, I encourage you, come on up, come on up, come on up, and parade by and take a look inside, and you'll see who's dead. 
you'll see the remains, you'll see who's dead. Well, what they didn't realize is he'd placed a mirror in the bottom of the casket. So everybody that walked by, and what did they see? Them. We, we don't like to think of ourselves as dead. I'm not dead, I'm alive. But I want to encourage you, friends. I want to encourage you. And you may not, but you may be. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? Don't walk out of here today without getting right with God. Don't walk out of here today without asking Jesus Christ to bring life, to breathe life. And how do we do that? Through His Holy Spirit. So I want to ask you to look in the mirror today. Look in the mirror and ask the Lord, am I spiritually alive or do I just have a reputation? Was I once alive? Was I once really close? I was really passionate. I was really on fire for Jesus. My relationship with the Lord was, was, was hot. But now the flames have kind of died down. It's really been a struggle. And I need to be restored. I need to be restored. I need to awaken. I need the breath of life to breathe life into me. We need to pray. I need the Lord to breathe life into my church today. Into my life and into my church. Let's bow our heads today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Again, I don't want anyone looking around today. This is private today. But I do want to ask you today, as we've been sharing, do you find yourself where you have been lacking in your spiritual vitality? Maybe the passion that you once had when you first fell in love with Jesus has kind of moved into just a, a routine pattern of kind of going through the motions. But the heart, if you're really honest, the heart and the passion and the excitement for the Lord is not there. You've really struggled. It's been a while since you've had an active prayer life. It's been a while since you've had an active devotional life. It's been a while since you, you really had something inside that was really, that you really felt like you were just really connected, where you were just vital, where you were just alive in Christ. Instead, you've kind of been lulled to sleep, and you've been convicted today, and you say, you know what, I need to repent of that. I need to wake up. And I need a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit in my life. I need a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit in my life. If that's you this morning, will you lift up your hand? I need a fresh touch. I need a fresh awakening of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I need awakening. Thank you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's begin to pray. Right now, begin to cry out to the Lord. Lord, I repent today. Father, awaken me today. Father, breathe life into me today. Awaken me today. Breathe life into me today. By your Holy Spirit, physically I'm walking around, but spiritually I'm dying inside, and I need you to awaken me today. I need you to breathe life into me. I repent, O oh God, of sin. I repent, O oh Lord, of decisions that I've made that have led me away from you. If that's you, just repent today of those things that have led you away. Maybe the things that you've begun to focus on rather than your walk with the Lord. Oh, Father, we repent today. Wake us up and make us alive in you. Make us alive in you. We repent today. Wake us up, oh God. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Come on, let's stand. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened by God's word. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, please visit PainesvilleAG.com.